If you please turn with me in your Bibles to First uh, Thessalonians chapter four. First Thessalonians chapter four, verses one through eight. Hear God's word. Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. It is striking how well the scriptures, even though written long ago, apply to our lives today. It's a testimony to God's authorship of the scriptures that he can have Paul write a letter nearly 2,000 years ago to people in the Greek city of Thessalonica, and yet we can read this epistle to the Thessalonians today and find that it speaks exactly to our culture today. Our culture is in many ways as morally corrupt in the area of sexuality as that of the Greeks. When you learn about the Greek culture and then compare it to our culture, it's hard to say which culture is worse. Of course, it's not a contest worthy of competition, because the winners of this contest are all losers. But it's hard not to compare the two cultures and to see the parallels. Even if our country is not descended as low as the Greeks, we are on the way. And uh, you can come to your own conclusions, but I think that we have actually surpassed the Greeks in many ways. Jean Vyth wrote an article clear back in June 2005 in the uh, issue of Table Talk, and the title was A Depraved New World. And in that article, he writes, Other cultures have been tolerant of sexual immorality, but even these stopped short of seeing sexual immorality as a good thing. In ancient Greece, prostitution was commonplace, but not for young women of respectable families who valued virginity and for whom promiscuity would be anathema. Homosexuality was rampant, but no one ever so much as suggested that homosexuals should marry each other. What happened is that the men who indulged in this vice, often in the army, would then marry a woman as soon as their service was over and had normal families, showing that homosexuality is not innate, but culturally constructed. Contrary to those who insist that the prohibitions of such sexual immorality in the New Testament are merely cultural, it is clear that Paul and other inspired authors were being countercultural since the vices they condemned were quite acceptable in the Greco Roman world. And yet, even the immoral Greeks saw the necessity of protecting the institution of the family. End quote. Our culture is really not any better than that of the Greeks in terms of its morality. And so Paul's warning and instruction to the Thessalonians about how to conduct themselves as sexual beings is just as relevant today as it was back then. 
And actually, I think it could be argued that it's more relevant for us today. We live in a culture that has cast away or is in the process of casting away all sexual boundaries. It's commonplace for men and women, young and old, to have sex without being married to one another. We live in a society where marriage is considered to be something optional, a ritual that is based in mere tradition that is considered by many to be outdated. And so couples think nothing of living together and having children together without marriage. On the other hand, it's ironic that while so many reject marriage, homosexuals in our culture want to be married. Men want to marry men, women want to marry women, and right now there are still many in our culture who reject the idea of homosexual marriage. But I am afraid that this stand for what is right is not going to last for long, because for many the basis for their stand is simply that they don't like the idea. For many, their moral compass is not based on the authority of God and his word, but simply on their feelings. With all of the ways that the homosexual lifestyle is promoted by society, people's negative feelings are being broken down more and more. And so consequently, homosexuals are having their way, which is to have a society that actually celebrates their lifestyle. Why not, when we as a culture have already adopted the idea that if it feels good, do it? All around us, the message is that all of your desires, including sexual desires, are to be fulfilled and satisfied however you want. What is good and moral in our culture is whatever makes you happy. And our sinful culture under the dominion of the devil says that if you want your neighbor's wife or husband, go ahead. You want to have sex with your boyfriend or, or girlfriend, our culture says, why are you even hesitating? Why are you even stopping to think about it? Go ahead. You want to satisfy your lusts in a corner somewhere, alone with dirty magazines, movies, or the internet, our culture says, why not? Your body and its sexual desires are for you to enjoy however you want. And it fits with this carefree attitude uh, that our culture is filled with things that stimulate our sexual appetites. There's no attempt being made by the world to hold back and to control sexual appetites. Why? What would be the purpose? The world's goal is to feed such lusts, which is exactly why in our culture today, television, movies, magazines, billboards, internet are filled with everything and anything that incites sexual desires. And think of how far we've come in the 50s, the networks were banned from broadcasts that would use the word virgin because of the term's close connection to matters of sexuality. In those days, you could watch television. It was rarely a source of temptation. In our day and age, you have to be vigilant if you are going to keep your eyes and ears from talk and actions and images that incite sexual desires because this stimulation is everywhere. It's accessible like it has never been before. And through the internet, satellite, cable TV, streaming, sexual st stimulation is only one click away and all in the comfort of your own home or in a hotel room. And so having painted a picture, a, a horrible picture of the world that we live in, but a real picture, the text this evening confronts our world and it confronts, confronts us with a way of life that is in very stark contrast with what is considered by many to be the norm. There should be no doubt in our minds after the text this evening that God's ways and the world's ways are completely opposite. God calls you to a life of sanctification. It's 
a word that Paul here uses, and a sanctified life is a life of holiness. The word sanctification, actually, the base word uh, of that in the Greek is the word for holiness. Paul's here talking about a life of separation from sin and consecration or dedication to God. So God calls you to live a holy life that is pleasing to him. And this life of holiness is not optional. It doesn't matter if God's way is not followed by the majority of people. You're not called to do what is popular, but what is right. The instruction that Paul gives to the Thessalonians, and which now comes to you and me, about how we are to use our bodies, it's not man's idea, it's not Paul's idea, it's God's idea. And so we consider the text this evening under the theme sanctification in the realm of sexuality. And there are three points that come out of these verses, what, how, and why. We're only going to get to the what this evening. The, the how and the why will be uh, for another time. So let's look closely here at the text. As chapter 4 opens, Paul writes, Finally then, brothers. And this wording tells us that there's a transition taking place. Chapters 4 and 5, the last two chapters of this epistle, are more instructional in nature than we have found so far. These uh, last two chapters have some rather large sections where the apostle is exhorting us as believers how to live as Christians. The first three chapters, Paul has mostly been looking back at his ministry among the Thessalonians. He's been reminiscing on how the Lord has been working in their lives. And as a whole, the first three chapters have been very upbeat. Um, The Thessalonians are, in general, on the right track. And uh, Paul is rejoicing. He's, He's thankful for this. But yet, already in chapter 3, we find indications that the Thessalonians are not perfect, which is, should not be surprising to us. There's always going to be some kind of instruction that every church, every Christian can use and, and needs. Um, the Thessalonians were not perfect in their faith. They were not perfect in love. They were not perfect in holiness. And now in chapters 4 and 5, Paul is focusing on their need for further instruction. He's looking forward to the future. He's urging them to a life of renewed and improved discipleship. And, of course, we need to remember, especially in the light of the Lord's coming, that's always in the back of the Apostle Paul's mind in his letters to the Thessalonians. The Lord is coming, and so we need to pursue holiness. And uh, the opening verse of chapter 4 sets the theme, then, of this section as sanctification. Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. Notice that your life is described as a walk, which speaks of progress. It speaks of movement in a certain direction. And so it is that in your life you should be abounding more and more in good works that please God. Your life should be God-centered, where everything you are doing um, is consciously and deliberately done to his glory. In verse 2, Paul refers to how he has already taught the Thessalonians uh, God's requirements. They had been instructed in many different ways um, about how to glorify God in their daily lives. And he summarizes their calling there in verse 3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Um. Sanctification is a process, right? We talk about how justification is 
a finished act of God. He, when we are justified, it's a, it's a one-time act where God declares us to be righteous in his sight, but sanctification is the process of becoming holy. It's God's will that your life become more and more in line with God's character and with his law. And it's not optional when you become a Christian whether or not you will serve God with your life. As a believer, you are now a slave of Christ. You have been purchased with his blood. And this state of salvation requires that you live a life of gratitude. And yes, we will not be perfect in this life, yet we are to pursue holiness out of a love for Christ. And as you've already gathered, there is here in this section of chapter 4 one particular part of life, an aspect of life that concerns the Apostle Paul. He wants the Thessalonians to be sanctified in the realm of their sexuality. So you must pursue holiness, yes, in all of life, in every area of life, but you are exhorted in particular here this evening to, as the Apostle says, abstain from sexual immorality. This word abstain is a rather strong word. It means to stay away from something. The idea here is that you hold yourself off from sexual immorality, that you keep a distance from it so that it is absent from your life. Paul writes essentially the same thing in Ephesians 5.3. He says, But among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. So Scripture is clear. We are to stay away from sexual immorality. But what is it? What is sexual immorality? Well, sexual immorality is a word in the Greek that refers to any kind of sexual activity apart from a committed marriage including sex between two people who are unmarried, which is also called in Scripture fornication. Uh, What is condemned here is adultery, which is a sexual relationship which disrupts your own or someone else's marriage. Homosexual relationships are also condemned here. Incest and really all other sexual activity which is apart from a proper marriage between one man and one woman. What God wants instead of sexual immorality is laid out for us in verses 4 and 5. He says um, there that each one of you should know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. The main thrust of this instruction is that you are to live lives of self-control, that you're not to give in to every desire and urge that you feel. Yes, God has made the sex desire, which means it's not evil in and of itself, and your body is also not evil in and of itself, but there is the potential for your body to become an instrument of evil when you allow yourself to be taken over or mastered by sinful desires, which is what is meant by the passions of lust. Paul refers to this in verse 5 when he says that people who follow passions of lust are those who do not know God. This is the characteristic of the Gentile cultures of Paul's day, including Thessalonica. It's a characteristic of our culture today. Sexual desires are allowed to run rampant. From those desires flow all kinds of sexual activity. We live in a culture of lust. Lust is a craving to satisfy desires in sinful ways. Lust essentially says, I don't care how, And when I get what I want, I just want it, and I am going to get it. And over against the lust of the flesh, 
God has told us that the sex desire is only to be satisfied within the bonds of marriage. Now, there is some difference of opinion about what is meant in verse 4, what's meant in particular by the part to control his own body in holiness and honor. Literally, it says uh, to, it's talking about acquiring or possessing one's own vessel in holiness and honor. There are two different meanings that commentators discuss. Um, Really, regardless of which view a person takes, the main teaching here is not unchanged. Uh, The main teaching remains intact that we are to live lives of self-control so that sexual desires are confined to marriage. And yet there are two different possible interpretations of this word vessel that I would bring to your attention. So by way of summary, one view says that this vessel is our body, which is like what we find in the ESV, while another ver- uh, uh, interpretation says that this vessel refers actually to one's spouse. So those who say that this vessel is our body say that verse 4 is teaching that we are to take control of our bodies so that we use our bodies in a way that is sanctified, that's holy, that brings honor to God. This is the interpretation taken up by the NIV, which translates verse 4, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable. And in support of this view, there there are some passages in Scripture where the word vessel is used to refer to our bodies, like when Paul refers to how he and his companions as missionaries, um, as they carry out the work of proclaiming the gospel, they say they have this treasure, the treasure of the gospel, in earthen vessels. It's referring to them with all of their bodily weaknesses and, and, uh, and dependence upon God. And certainly it is a biblical idea that we are to exercise self-control over our own bodies. An obstacle, though, to this interpretation is the fact that the Greek here doesn't mean control. Nor does the Greek use the usual word for a body, but the word for vessel. Literally, the Greek says each of you should know how to acquire his own vessel. Um, The New King James says uh, you should, should know how to possess his own vessel, but even possess is not the best translation. The Greek word means to acquire or take. And so with this in mind, it doesn't make sense to say that you are to acquire your own body. Which brings us to the second interpretation, which says that the reference here is to acquiring or taking a marriage partner. It should be pointed out in that in Greek literature, there are times when, when this word acquire is put with the word vessel. It means to marry a wife. And so Peter in 1 Peter 3, 7 uses the word vessel to refer to a wife. And uh, the majority of good conservative commentators that I've consulted agree that the idea here is the taking of a marriage partner. So after weighing all of the evidence and various arguments on both sides, which I've only barely introduced this evening, I'm led to believe that the idea here is that in order to live sanctified lives in the realm of sexuality, you must learn to acquire your own marriage partner, a person referred to as a vessel with whom you can share your sexual desires. Now, you might ask why the word vessel would be used to refer to a husband or wife. Well, referring to a person as a vessel makes sense when you're focusing upon a person's body as a shell or container or vessel for the soul. 
It's also, it also makes sense to talk about a person as a vessel when in the context here the subject matter is directly related to physical desires and how we use our physical bodies. Our bodies are vessels created for holiness. And it's good and proper that sex desire bring two vessels together in a marriage relationship where the desires of our bodies can be satisfied as God intended. The point is that you must not live in the passion of lust or you live sexually irresponsible lives, but you must acquire a marriage partner and in that way live a life of holiness that honors God. Married life is not only a way of life that honors God, but marriage life is also about honoring your partner with the commitment of a marriage relationship. Waiting to be married before having sex is how you show love and respect and honor to a person of the opposite sex. But the opposite, where you have a sexual relationship without marriage, is a relationship based on lust that uses someone as a sexual object. That is not how you honor God. That is not how you honor your neighbor. The same perspective is found in 1 Corinthians 7. Paul, in that chapter, is saying that marriage is is not required. Um, It's not something that a person must do. It is to be entered into voluntarily. But nevertheless, he says, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife. Let each woman have her own husband. If they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So returning to 1 Thessalonians 4, we see in verse 6 that Paul is still expanding on the command to abstain from sexual immorality when he says that, um, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Uh, To transgress comes from a Greek word that means to go beyond, to go beyond the bounds, uh, to trespass, and here refers to going beyond the bounds set by God with respect to sexual relationships. The second part translated as wrong his brother or take advantage of him comes from a Greek word that has the idea of greed and refers to wanting to have more than one should, so that out of greed you take advantage of another person. And here the idea is a covetous lusting after someone's spouse or the inappropriate seducing of someone's daughter, which results in stealing away of a spouse's or of a daughter's affections. So the translation of verse 6 should read that no one should go beyond what is proper and in a greedy way take advantage of his brother in this matter. Verse 7 acts as a summary to God's call to sanctification in the area of our sexual lives when it says, For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Uh, In the three-point outline, we only got to the what this evening. The how and the why we'll have to wait for a later time. And yet, this evening, I want to say some things as we close that are very important to keep in mind with a sermon like this about holy living. First of all, if you have fallen into the sin of sexual immorality, you are to know that there is forgiveness in Christ. It is impossible to really remain completely pure in this area. Um, Since we live in a world that bombards us constantly in ways that incite our lust, there is no doubt that even if we do not sin with our bodies, all of us have or will sin at some time 
in the area of our thought life. Even though our culture says otherwise, sexual immorality and the lusts that accompany it are sin, which means that for all adults, you have on some level failed to live a holy life in the area of your sexuality, and this should grieve you. And your response ought to be twofold, first to confess your sin and to ask for God's forgiveness. And in asking for God's forgiveness, you you need to understand, you need to accept and believe by faith that Jesus died on the cross for sinners just like you, just like me. Jesus Christ died to take the punishment that our sins deserve, including the sin of sexual immorality. You must receive, you must rest upon Christ alone as your Savior from sin. And you must, in fact, believe that God gladly forgives your sin for the sake of his Son. And second, you need to respond to God's forgiveness with thankfulness because you should know that you don't deserve that forgiveness. And such thankfulness for God's grace will come to expression in fighting sin. It means that you will work toward holiness. It means you will take sin seriously and that you will do what you can to flee from it. With the culture that we live in, we need to take stock of our lives. We need to evaluate whether or not we are opening up our hearts and lives to the thinking and to the ways of the world. In what ways are you letting the world guide and influence you in using your body in irresponsible ways? Out of love for Christ and out of gratitude for his grace and earning righteousness for us, you ought to desire to please God. And God has told you this evening what he wants you to do, God's will. What he desires is that you abstain from sexual immorality. And if you say no to God in this or in any other area of your life, you are saying no to any of God's blessings, including eternal life. God's works are certainly not what save us, but they are evidence of saving faith. They are the expressions of a heart that truly knows Christ. And my prayer is that you have such a deep love for Christ. It comes out of a knowledge of his forgiving of your sins that this love reveals itself in your life by a life that is so contrary to the ways of the world. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that We would abstain from sexual immorality, that such sin would not even be named among us, and that there would not even be a hint of such things, that, Lord, we would live holy lives. We know that especially the battle takes place in the heart where we have these lusts, these these sinful desires. Lord, we we ask that you would forgive us. We ask that you would change our hearts, that, that we would hate more and more these passions of the flesh, these desires that are sinful, that are not pleasing to you. Lord, uh, we pray that we would live differently than the world around us, that it would be evident that we belong to you, that, that our bodies, not only our souls, but our bodies have been purchased by Christ and belong to him, and we are using our bodies to, to serve and to glorify our Savior. Lord, uh, we pray that uh, we would honor marriage as you do in your word. And uh, Lord, we pray uh, that uh, you would be glorified. Lord, we pray that you would also help us to to recognize anew um, the forgiveness that we need in Christ, that there is hope even for those who have fallen into sexual immorality. 
Lord, um, we thank you that even uh, the very worst of sins are covered by the blood of Christ. But Lord, may we not in any way um, uh, grow lax in, in our fight against sin, but Lord, that we would pursue holiness out of a fear of you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.